1 John 2, verse 3 says, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself to walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And Father, we just humbly ask that you'd give us the grace we each need this morning as we continue now in our worship of you by opening the word of God and looking to your Holy Spirit to speak to us things from it. So Lord, help us now to have a heart that's pleasing to you, that's receptive. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening, we ask, and that it would be the ministry of your spirit conveying things to our hearts through the word this morning. And we ask this together expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I think though over scrutinizing ourselves too often and maybe too harshly is certainly not healthy spiritually, but in the same manner, I also think that failing to or neglecting to or even refusing to examine our lives spiritually is not healthy also. Both can be very unhealthy and incorrect. In fact, 2 Corinthians 13, which we just went through not too long ago, specifically says, examine yourselves. Test yourselves, it said, and make sure you're in relationship, right relationship with the Lord. That is, make sure to verify, first and foremost, that you truly know God yourself and that you're not making the error of just doing some religious routines in your life verify that you're truly walking with God, that you're genuinely experiencing the work of God's spirit within you. And that really seems to be what our text is drawing our attention to and addressing this morning, how to know if we are right with God personally. And that should be one of the things that we are more concerned about than anything else in the world, to know that we are right with God personally. Again, the backdrop as we come into our verses this morning, remember John has been speaking about a genuine personal experience with God and what that truly means, what it includes, and how that is so important and beneficial for everyone to be having an experience with God. In fact, last time we saw how he was speaking about what it meant to have a healthy relationship with God. 
and how that is actually now possible for all of us through what Jesus has accomplished and what Jesus offers. That though we are all sinful people, that though we are all broken inwardly because of sin's effect upon our lives from birth, we can receive forgiveness from our sins. We can receive cleansing from our sins. And if we're willing to humbly confess our mistakes, to own up to our errors, to admit and acknowledge when we have done what we know is wrong and not try and dismiss it and keep things in the light and open, then we can receive forgiveness for our wrongdoing and we can even be cleansed and washed from the guilt that's within us from our errors and our sinful mistakes. The danger, he said last time, is when pride begins to cause us to deny our own sinfulness and even worse, to deny when we're actually practically doing sinful and wrong things. And then we start to live in deceitful ways and doing things in the dark and thinking certain things are permissible and that we're entitled to behave badly and dismiss it with some excuse or disregard. And we try and keep sin then in the dark and we don't bring it into the open and bring it into the light and deal with it properly and let God humble us and break us and receive his forgiveness. And he warned of this danger last time of self-deception. And the greatest danger of self-deception, just like it's the greatest danger of pride, is you don't know you're proud and you don't know you're deceived. That's why it's called self-deception. And the most scary thing of all is to realize how self-deceived we can become as human beings when pride grips our heart and we start, as John said, lying to ourselves and we start lying to others and living in very dark and unhealthy ways. And it seems John, again, as we said in our start of this study, who's 90-ish years old at this time, who's been walking with Jesus since he was a teenager, which means he's got about a, let's say, a 70-year run on walking with the Lord. He's got about a 60-year or so run with the early days of church life. And when you've got that as your background, it's pretty easy to kind of start seeing through error. And, and kind of just as an older saint who's mature and seasoned in the Lord, John here gives in our verses this morning some self-tests to evaluate and take inventory on our spiritual life. He gives a few very specifically. He gives the test of spiritual obedience. He gives the test of being Christ-like in our living. And he gives the test of love for people or the absence thereof within us. And the purpose of these self-tests is really twofold, to see if we're clearly failing in those self-tests, that we would see the reality that we are not right with God and something needs to be addressed. By the same token, those self-tests also can allow us to see if we are in alignment, then we can be encouraged in our soul and we can assure ourselves and not fret over how we're doing, but know that though we're not perfect, that we are living and walking in relationship with God. So look with me in verse three as he begins this section here. He says, chapter two, verse three, now by this, by this, notice those words, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So right out of the gate, John declares the obedience test to verify our spiritual condition or our spiritual state. So we may ask, how can we know for sure if we know God or not? 
How can we be certain? How can we tell pretty specifically if someone else, for example, genuinely knows God or not? Well, the Bible says very specifically, verse 3, by this we know. That is, there is a way, God says, to be certain. There is a way to verify, to validate, to be sure, a way to measure so that we can know for certain by testing in this way to reveal the accuracy of our spiritual condition or to be pretty accurate, though only God knows a person's heart, to be pretty certain that we can know in regards to someone else, whether we are on the right path spiritually or whether we are in a wrong condition spiritually. John says, by this we know, notice, next statement, we know what? That we know him. Now, I want you to take notice of that statement there, that we know him, of course, talking about God, because that word know, though it may not imply itself in the English translation, in the original Greek language, they had sometimes multiple words that are translated into English. So, for example, we've often heard before in Bible teaching that the word love in English could be multiple different Greek words. It can be agape, it can be phileo. It can be eros, it can be storge. These were different Greek terms used to describe specific kinds of love. And in the same way, there was more than one word used to translate know in the English. And when he says here that we can be certain that we know him, know God, he's using the Greek term gnosko, which means to know something by personal experience with it. It's a different term that was often used to translate no as well. There's another term, no, which meant to know by facts or learned information. The idea is by observation. So one way you can know something is by observation or by listening or hearing secondhand information. And you can come to know certain facts, learn certain things by observation or hearing from others. But the best way to really know something is by what? First-hand experience. That's a different way to come to know something. So you can know things by hearing others talk about them, but you can know something by your own first-hand experience with it. That's a whole other thing. And here, when he uses our term to know God, he's talking about this word gnosko, to know God by first-hand experience. This is how we can know, be certain, that we have come to have a firsthand experience and we're experiencing God and know him personally. The difference, we might say, is between knowing about a person and actually knowing a person, right? Many of us in this room this morning, if you're a Christian, you may know some things, for example, about Billy Graham. You know about Billy Graham, but most of us didn't know Billy Graham. You understand the difference there? We didn't know him personally. His wife knew him personally, experientially. She had a relationship with him. Well, in the same way, spiritually, we can learn facts about God. We can know things about the Lord Jesus Christ. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we know God experientially. It doesn't mean that we know Jesus in a personal relationship. Having personal ongoing experience with God, knowing God in that way, that's the highest ideal. But John says the question is whether that's happened or not yet. Does a person know about God or have they come to actually know God experientially? So he says this is how we can be certain 
that we've had this true experience with God personally, where we know him. He says that those who know God experientially, he says in verse three here, this is how we can tell if we keep his commandments. That is, here's how you can tell when you know God, who's the ruler of all. You will be inclined to be obedient to him. Because as you come to know him as ruler of all and king of kings, you will want to live in obedience to what he commands in his word. When a person comes to know God personally and has an encounter with him, they are awakened to who God is for the first time in their life. They realize he is creator. I am creation. He is, he is Lord. I am servant. He is the one that has all authority and, and I need to yield myself to him. And when a person comes to know God and understands his authority, the spirit of God enters within and he gives to us a brand new heart. And our heart is changed. And the way our heart relates to God is changed. We now love God and we want to live for God and our heart turns away from sin and what dishonors God because now our heart has been changed because we've come to know God and his spirit has come within us and now we want to keep God's word. We desire to live for God because we know him and we love him now. And a transition happens and that will be evidenced in a deep desire to keep the truths of the word of God, we'll find ourselves in a new way obeying God in a way that we never did before in our life. In two different ways, by living in biblical obedience and obeying the word of God, his written will in our practice and our way of life, and also by walking in the spirit and letting God's spirit guide my life and yielding to his word as he speaks to me in my heart. And see, here's how you can tell that something like that has happened and a person has come to know God in a personal way because that is a very unnatural way for a human being to live. By nature, we are sinful and broken. And so by nature, we don't start out automatically wanting to obey God. We don't naturally from birth want to obey the word of God. But what happens is a change happens when you come to know God. And when you have a true encounter with God, your relationship towards God changes from rebel to servant. And that's how you can tell something's happened. Because no longer do I want to live in rebellion to God. Now I want to serve God. Now I want to follow God's word. I want to obey God and obey God's word. So he says that's how we can tell. We can know for certain if someone knows God personally and experientially. He then, verse four, goes on to add on to that. He who says, back to this idea of professions, I know him. I know him. I, I, what are you saying? I know God, but does not keep his commandments, John says, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So again, John's this older saint. He's seasoned. He's gracious, but he's very direct, right? And that's kind of what happens. It's like, just very gracious, but at the same time, he doesn't have time to mince words. He's 90 years old. He doesn't know how many he has left. So he's gracious, but very direct. And he says here, look, this false spiritual claim, someone claiming, I know God. I know God in a personal way. I have a relationship with God. I'm experiencing God, he says. But contrast, here's the contrast problem. They don't obey God's commandments. That is, they don't live in accordance with, and in submission to the written word of God, they disregard what God's word says. They have no problem with ignoring the commands of scripture 
or the directives in the word of God. They can live in ways that disregard the voice of God's spirit and what he speaks to them. And the things that God may be conveying, God testifies to their conscience what's right and wrong, but there's no indication of being led by the spirit. There's no indication that they're yielding to God. They're, they're living a self-directed life. They're still ruling on their heart as the authority rather than yielding to God's authority. John says, when that is the case, then the truth is, notice, despite what they claim, John says. John says, despite what they claim, the truth of the matter is, verse four, he says, that person is a liar. And the truth is, is not in them. Such a person is consciously or so utterly self-deceived that they do not realize that they are lying about their own spiritual condition. They're completely blinded. Either they are lying to themselves and denying reality and failing to see that they don't know God, or they are so deceived, sadly, because the Bible says the God of this age the devil has blinded the minds of those, don't, those who don't believe that they cannot see that though they are professing one thing with their mouth, their practice is completely the opposite. As, as the Bible says, they profess to know God, but in works, they deny him. And they don't even see this horrible inconsistency, this contradiction. But the reality is the fruit of their life, how they live, is that they're not obeying God. And so... Here, John says that gives concrete evidence they're not right with God. They're living in error. They are either deceived or they're just a deceiver or they're both. They're either utterly deceived or they are a pretender and a deceiver and a master manipulator. Jesus spoke of this very truth as well in Matthew 7. These were our Lord's words. And no doubt John heard these truths and this is why John is saying, I'm just repeating in my own words what I learned from Jesus. Jesus said, Matthew 7, even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. You will recognize them, identify them. Again, Jesus made very clear, plain illustration of this when he said, a good tree, because by nature and DNA, it's a good tree. It's going to produce fruit in kind to its DNA. A bad tree is going to produce bad fruit, just like you can tell what kind of a tree. You don't have to be a, a, a master scientist to walk through an area where there's a, you know, an, an orchard or, or fruit trees and look at a tree and it's got apples growing and go, what kind of tree is that? I mean, I see apples on it, but what kind of tree is that? Well, it's obvious if it has apple trees on it, it cannot be an orange tree. It's an apple tree because by DNA, the sap is flowing through and it's producing fruit and kind according to what tree it is. It's clear evidence. And so Jesus said this, even as you can identify trees by their fruit, we can identify people by the fruit of their actions, by the way that they live by what their practice and conduct is. Jesus gave a way to evaluate in a healthy and an appropriate way, not in a judgmental or a critical way, but to simply inspect the fruit produced in a person's routine way of living 
Jesus said that is more true and that is more accurate than no matter what masterful professions they can make to people outwardly. He said the fruit is the clear-cut evidence. He says such a person, if they say they know God and are having an experience with God, but yet they are disregarding the word of God and his commands in their life, they are lying and the truth is not at work within such a person. Lies and error and blindness are at work. Now, verse 5, he goes on to say, but whoever keeps his word, now we got the opposite contrast, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And by this, he says again, we know that we are in him, that is in relationship with him. Now, in this obedience test of spiritual life, John also shows how we can assure our hearts that things are right between us and God. And I think that's important sometimes because on occasion we can struggle with our own self-criticism and tendencies towards condemnation. And we can question and worry about our spiritual life. And John says, look, let me, let me assure the faint hearted here. By this, he says, also, we can know that we are in relationship with him he says, if we keep his word. So again, here he's talking about a way to recognize, to assure ourselves that we are in him, that is in right relationship with him, that we're having an ongoing living experience with God and encounters with him, a way to test and verify. And he says that is that we see within ourselves or within others someone who is keeping his word. The idea there is obeying God living out the word of God, submitting to his word, that person is in right relationship with God. Again, living in a way where we're submitted to the authority of the written word of God. That though we don't do things perfectly, that generally we yield our will to live in a manner according to practicing what the word of God says as the final authority in our lives. And that we're seeking with genuine humility and faith to do what the word of God declares, what it directs, what it asks of us, what it requires of us. And we humbly to submit to what God speaks in his word because we believe that this is his will. And because it's his will, we know God and love God. And so we desire to serve God. And we want to be directed by him. And we understand that the majority of God's clear directives for life and godliness are in his word. And so therefore, to demonstrate our love towards him, we willingly comply and submit to obediently walk out what God says in the scripture. And I think that also applies as well, not just obeying the word of God, but in a secondary sense, also listening to the voice of God's spirit. As he speaks within us, his word, sometimes specifically his word, as the Holy Spirit brings his word to remembrance. Or maybe at times as well, when obeying his word and keeping his word is at times when the spirit of God is just speaking a word in season to our hearts. As a part of the ministry within the child of God, the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And now all of a sudden you're hearing voices. Well, you're hearing a voice for sure you're hearing God's voice because God's spirit dwells within you. And the same Holy Spirit who wrote the word of God dwells now inside the believer. And at times he may speak a personal word to our heart. He may ask us to do something. He may prompt us to behave in a certain way. He may 
request something of us and cause us to hear things that God is telling us to do or that God is telling us to not do or to stop doing or to start doing. And at times the Holy Spirit will speak a word from God to our hearts, give us a directive. He'll show us what God desires in connection to his will and plan. We see this in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 8, Philip, it tells us, is in the midst of an incredible spiritual revival and God's using him in this wonderful, profound way. And then the Lord speaks to him. He says, look, I want you to leave that. And I want you to go out into the middle of a desert. And so he follows the leading of the Lord. And then when he gets out there, it says that he sees a chariot and it says that the spirit spoke to him and said, Philip, go near and overtake that chariot. In other words, the spirit of God spoke a word to Philip's heart and said, do you see that? I, this is what I want you to go do. And the spirit spoke a word to him and he responded to the word that God spoke to him by his spirit. In Acts chapter 13, we see the spirit directing the church through a prophetic word, it seems, in a prayer meeting as they were assembled together. And the spirit spoke and said, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I've called them to. And we see the Holy Spirit speaking a word to direct the ministry in the affairs of the church. And remember, when we talk about following a word from the spirit to obey God's word or keep God's word in that way, the way we can always discern that we are listening to the spirit is the same Holy Spirit who wrote the word of God is the same Holy Spirit who dwells inside the child of God. And so there's always going to be consistency. So whenever I want to say the spirit spoke to me and told me to do this, then I need to know, okay, well, then does that at least align with the principles and truths of Scripture? Because God is not schizophrenic. God's not double-minded. When somebody says, oh, the Spirit told me to do this, and yet the Word of God has commands and directives and truths and principles that clearly contradict that, that may be your human spirit, but that's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will always speak to us to do things that align with and support with the word of God and consistency. However, when we hear a word from the spirit, even as we have the written word of God, we should obey both. We should keep both. And when a person is living in relationship with God and they're obeying God, John says here through his word, John says to us here in verse five, notice, look what he says. He says, this is what proves that truly the love of God is being perfected in that person. What John's conveying here is when that's happening, this obedience, that reveals that our love for God is reaching a fuller and more mature state through its obedience. And here's why that is true. Because the hardest thing to conquer in our life is our love for ourself. It is for me anyway. The hardest thing to conquer is our own self-will and our own human selfishness. So when we start denying ourselves in order to obey God, truly the love of God and love for God is really progressing and completing and developing its fullest sense in our heart. That word perfect there is to reach full completion or to come to a mature condition, to arrive at a higher state of development. So we can tell, John's saying, that we're truly developing in real or full love relationship with God when we find ourselves in love for him and response back to him, wanting to be obedient to him in deeper and greater ways. Those who obey God and his word truly show how completely 
they love God. And that makes complete sense because what is a way to measure true love on a relational level humanly? When you're beginning to develop and grow in love for a person, what starts to happen? You start wanting to do what pleases them, right? You start wanting to do those things that make them happy and that serve and bless them. You may even at times find yourself in doing things that you don't even enjoy. But you do those things because you love them. And that's part of what love. See, there you go. There's some amens on that one, right? And we find ourselves all of a sudden, you know, doing things out of love for someone. And it may not even be our preference. It may even be hard for us to do it. But we do it out of love for them. Well, the same is true spiritually. There are times when God and his authority and the truth of his word is going to say things to our hearts. And in our selfishness and our humanity and who we're going to go, man, that's hard, Lord. That's hard to live like that. Or that may be hard to submit to that or yield that. But when we start denying ourselves in genuine love for God, listen, and we sacrifice our will to do God's will according to his word, John simply says here, that's love for God. That's showing that we are genuinely progressing in love for God. True love for God, folks, listen, it's not in deep-sounding words and, and speaking all kinds of, you know, things that express such deep love and passion for God, right? In the same way we say to people, look, don't tell me you love me, show me you love me. You, people can write great love notes and then treat their loved one horribly, right? It's all words, and so just great words, spiritual words, sentiments, things we say, you know, are getting deeply emotional and passionate and excited. I'm not diminishing those things can't be an aspect, an element of love for God. But the clearest demonstration, the Bible says, of love for God is obedience. It's showing God we love him by denying our will and obeying his word and following his will, Jesus said it this way, and he was God in the flesh. If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Jesus said, this is how you can prove you love me. Obey me. When you obey me, you prove that you love me. That's how Jesus asked us to show our love for him. And he said, that is how we demonstrate clearly if indeed we do love him. So what will it look like in our relationship with the Lord Jesus to be loving God. Well, John tells us in verse six, he says, he who says he abides in him ought himself to walk just as he walked. So when a person claims that they're remaining connected to God, that word abide means to remain in, to, to continue with, to stay connected to, he says, when a person says they're staying connected to God, this will be reflected by patterns in their life of mirroring their life by living the same way and walking the same way that God did. He who says he abides in him, that is like a branch connected to the, to the tree and the sap flows through it so it produces fruit and kind. Well, he says in the same way, if we're saying we're remaining connected to him and in relationship with him and experiencing him, then he says right here in verse 6, then that person should or will live out their lives, verse 6, walking just as he walked. Now, question, when did God walk on the earth? 
When did God walk among us so that we might walk as he walked? What was when he became flesh and dwelt among us as a man in Jesus? That's why some of your translations may specifically say we must live as Jesus lived or we should live out our lives as Jesus did. The indication is as we're in an ongoing spiritual experience with God through our relationship with his son, Jesus, and we're connected to him, his spirit, the Bible says Christ in us, Christ in you, he dwells within us, the spirit of the Lord is working within us and he directs us to then live as he desires. He begins to work within us in such a way where he might live out his life now through us. And even as he once dwelt in a physical body, now we are the body of Christ. And now he wants to live through my body and your body and use our body to live out his life and the expression of his life here on this earth. Romans chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians 3 tell us that the spirit of the Lord is constantly working inside us as believers to make us more like Jesus. That is that my disposition would become more like Jesus. That is that your manner of life would become more like Jesus. Our way of thinking should progressively become more like Jesus Christ. This should be the reality in question. What was the manner of Jesus' life? We should be walking as he walked. What was the manner of Jesus' life? What characterized his way? Well, the four gospels lay that out very clearly. A couple things, if I can bring to reminder, that characterize the manner of Jesus' life. One, to me, is very evident. He had a deep desire to do his Father's will and not his own. His highest desire was not my will, but your will be done, Father. Out of love for his Father, Jesus was continually denying himself and yielding to the will of his Father out of his love for his father and that should characterize our lives to greater and greater degree jesus manner of life was it not was one of great humility jesus would do any lowly task he said i'm among you as one who serves and jesus said i didn't come into this world to be served king of kings i didn't enter into this world to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom to many and we see jesus with great humility it was never seeking glory. Even in John 13, when he was washing filthy, dirty feet of his disciples, taking a servant task, he wasn't even drawing attention to himself when he did that. It was afterwards. He just drew attention to the lesson and said, this is an example. If I, your Lord and teacher, will do this, why won't you do lowly things? Why won't you humbly serve and do practical things in love to care for one another? Jesus was marked by great humility. Our Lord Jesus was not forceful or harsh. He was meek, which means power and authority under control, under restraint. Jesus was gentle. That was his autobiographical statement. He said, come learn of me. Take my yoke upon you. He says, for I'm meek and humble or lowly in heart. Jesus wasn't forceful and aggressive. He was compassionate and gentle and meek. He cared about people's welfare. He was marked by humble servanthood. In the way he related to people, it always was connected to great sacrifice of himself for the benefit and welfare of others. And we see this marked in the life of Jesus, this deep concern for caring for people, helping and ministering to those who were hurting. That's who Jesus was always gravitating towards. 
Again, these were the things that characterized the manner of Jesus' life. So the Bible says to us here, self-test, if we're truly staying connected to him, if we're truly experiencing relationship with him, then he will not just indwell us as Christians, he will be enthroned within us as Christians. And the manner of his life will begin to be manifest through our life. And we will begin to see more and more, we should anyway, progressively, the manner of Jesus' life in Jesus' way, beginning to reflect the same characteristics and marks in how we're walking out our life. That these same things, that our life should be characterized by humility, by, by desire to do the Father's will, but by servanthood, by sacrifice, by loving and caring for people, not being forceful and bullying people, manipulating people, but caring for those hurting and doing what we can in love to just humbly serve people around us. Not drawing glory to ourselves, but wanting glory to go to God. Even as Jesus did, we should see those Christ-like things marking our life more and more. John says, this is a spiritual test. If we say we're abiding in him, then we also ought to be walking just as he, our Lord Jesus, walked. John goes on, verse 7, to say, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old one, which you've had, notice, from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. So thinking about, I think, the great love of God that was displayed powerfully, most clearly, in the Lord Jesus, John seems now to move on to this next test, the test of love working in our hearts. He says here in verse 7, beloved, that's a, that's a, that's a family term, or, or brethren. Again, the idea there is family term. He's, he's relating to them with an affectionate love, my brothers, my sisters. And look what he says here. He says, I'm not trying to give you more new commandments for your Christian life. He says, honestly, I just want to remind you of those old familiar, faithful commandments, that familiar commandment, the old one that you have had, he says, from the very beginning. And they had God's old foundational command from the earliest days of the Old Testament. And what was God's old foundational paramount command? Well, Deuteronomy 6 declared it this way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That was the paramount command that they had from the beginning, the foremost command. Now, later when God was on the earth living as a man in the person of his son, Jesus, they even asked Jesus to verify what's that good old foundational familiar command from the beginning to which Jesus said this when they said, teacher, what is Matthew 22? Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the entire law? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And then Jesus added, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Mark 12, Jesus said, there is no commandment greater than these. So Jesus validated simplicity of spiritual life. Jesus said, God likes to keep it real basic for people like you and I, sheep. God says, here's the fundamentals. Love God supremely. 
just with all of your being. Just love God supremely and obey him as a result and love people around you, your neighbors, those that you're connected to, those who are close by and in proximity to you. John says, this is the kind of stuff that's always mattered to God. He says here, verse seven, from the beginning. That's what's always mattered to God. Just loving God supremely and loving people who God loves and created as well. Well, Verse eight, John goes on to say again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, right away, you may go, wait a minute, John, you're in your 90s. Is this this starting to happen now? You said no new commandment, just an old commandment. Now you're saying you are writing a new commandment. John, what's going on here? I thought it was just the old obvious commandment, yet now you're saying there's something new. Well, John here is writing about obeying a new commandment. Notice verse 8. He says that is true in him, referring to Jesus, and in you. This new command becomes truly possible in and through an experience with Jesus And what John's going to begin to talk about is this command to love one another, which was an old command already in place, right? Because it tells us in Leviticus 19, which Jesus quoted when they asked about the greatest commandment in Leviticus 19, it said, love your neighbor. But Jesus gave that old command to love new insight. To express that command, you might say in a fresh way, more fully to give it deeper meaning to obey it much better. Write in your notes, John 13, verse 34, Jesus declared this. Listen to what Jesus said. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's the key. That you also love one another. So the old commandment was love one another. But then Jesus added, as I have loved you. So Jesus took an old command to love one another and he gave it new or fresh meaning of a fuller and greater expression. Loving one another has always mattered to God from the beginning. However, Jesus gave it new insight that we should be loving one another. He says, love one another. Key, here's the new part, as I have loved you. That is sacrificially, unconditionally, constantly through servanthood. And see, when we begin to love, folks, when we begin to love as Jesus loved, that has a powerful effect because the very next statement in John 13, Jesus declared this, by this, all will know that you're my disciples if you have this love for one another. See, when we love one another as Jesus loved, That's like a bright light shining into a dark world. And Christian love has this powerful testimony of reality about God. That's why, no doubt, in this verse, in verse 8, he says the end of it. When this happens, when we love like Jesus, we drive out. Look what he says. We drive out the darkness and cause it to pass away. Because, see, something amazing happens when this unusual love, the love of Christ, starts happening among God's people. It causes people who live in a very dark and cruel and mean and nasty world to see such a contrast that all of a sudden they find themselves going, wow, God must be real. I can't get over the way those people care about one another. I can't comprehend that after that, they can still walk in love towards one another. 
and not get mean and nasty and weird and, and act ruder than we do out here in the world. Wow, God must be real. And all of a sudden, this powerful way, when the, the, the light of the love of Jesus begins to shine through us, what happens is it drives out darkness and it causes the darkness to begin to fade away and the light of God starts to shine. And that's why Christian love is so crucial because it's a powerful testimony in a very dark world. And it drives out the darkness of the world. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, John seeming to add on to this in verses 9 through 11 wraps this up by saying the following. He who says he's in the light, walking in connection to the light of the world with Jesus, and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is, again, he says, in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So John here in verses 9 through 11, in a very wordy and somewhat repetitious way, candidly addresses this solid test that he's talking about to know if we're in right and healthy relationship with God by the love test. He says, if we're staying connected to God and if we're keeping things in the light, not turning to dark ways of the flesh and the world and the devil, then look what he says here. There will not be the ability to hatefully despise our brother despite what's happened between us. He says, if we are walking in the light in connection to the light of the world with God who is light, hurtful things may cause relational distance. God's word does not discount that. God's word is not naive and to act like the absence of conflict or problems don't happen. The New Testament is filled with instructions how to resolve conflict, how to deal with hurts and offenses. So hurtful things may cause relational distance. And relational distance may even be essential when hurtful things happen. Disconnect at times is even biblical when someone's professing something and yet they're defying God and God's word to show disapproval. So he's not discounting that, yet God's love working in our heart, the Bible says here, won't permit us to continuously hate and despise a fellow Christian in our heart. It won't permit us to do that. John challenges this false spiritual profession using similar imagery from back in chapter one of walking in the light, which means walking in connection to what's right and pure in God's light and keeping things in the open and walking in darkness, which is doing wrong and sinful things and keeping things in the dark. And he says right there in verse nine, look at it. He who says he's in the light, walking with God, letting God's light shine in, but then contradicts that statement by then hating his brother. John says that person's being dishonest with himself. Their mind is in a dark place. Why? Because a God who is not only light without any dark ways, but John's going to say later, he's also a God who is love. And if we're walking with a God of light and love and he's working in us, he would not permit us to continuously nurse hatred in our heart towards a fellow spiritual family member. He would not permit us to continually 
despise a person because of something that happened. His love will work in our heart, even in the hardest of personal relationships. Even if something has transpired that's caused great pain or maybe severe problems where there's been deep offense or or painful wounds, which can happen, which do happen, even among the body of Christ. But he says, when those things happen, a person who can continue in hatred towards their brother, the Bible says, is in darkness. Let me give it a different picture. They're in a really dark place right now. That's a really dark place to gravitate into. And he says, such a person, notice he restates it there in verse 11, redundantly, he says, he who hates his brother is in darkness. He says a second time, and is walking, continuing to walk in darkness or in dark ways. In other words, the hate has allowed the powers of darkness to blind such a person. The hatred within the heart has caused a person, he says there, to not know, verse 11, to not know where they're going. They've become like a blind person. And they're walking around and their judgment is blinded. They're impaired. They can't see clearly. They can't make right choices. They're wandering around in a way because they are in the dark and like a blind person trying to walk who doesn't know where they're going, they're risking harming themselves. They're taking wrong steps. They're moving in directions that are no better than where they were going. They're getting further off path. And see, when you're in a dark place because of hatred being nursed in your heart, the Bible says, just like a blind person who does not know where you're going, that is not a safe condition. That is a very dangerous condition to wander into the dark ways of the world and the dark ways of the devil and the dark ways of our sinful flesh. And he says, that is a very scary place. Such a person who's become hateful towards another has wandered into a dark place. And in that dark place, the devil can misguide a person to do some really unhealthy things. It's a scary place to be. And so the Bible greatly cautions Such a person struggling with such, their judgment is impaired. Their decisions are off track. They don't even know what they're doing anymore. Now, look, this morning, perhaps something has happened in your life that's caused hurt, that's caused offense. And maybe a root of bitterness has now blossomed and is beginning to bear forth a little bit of despisal towards a person, hatred towards someone. And it's overtaken and started the root in your heart. Can I say to you this morning, don't disregard that. That's a dangerous, dark place to go down that road. And so the question may become, what does one do if hurt and anger have caused feelings of hatred to darken my heart, to darken my mind? What do we do? Well, what we do is we bring that into the light. You got to just bring it into the light before God. That's why he says there in verse 10, very clearly, he who loves his brother is abiding in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. So we have to navigate it properly. And notice he does not say he who likes his brother's behavior doesn't say that. He doesn't say you doesn't say you agree with them. If someone is doing wrong things, we should indicate our disapproval. I don't like what you're doing at all. It's wrong. It's sinful. It's hurtful. 
It doesn't mean that we endorse or support their sinful behavior. Maybe even we have to disconnect from it because of the hurtful, wrong things they're doing. Look, dangerous and disobedient people, they need to be severely dealt with by God. They need that for their own sake and the welfare of others that they're influencing. Yet the Bible says when hurtful and wrong things happen, we navigate that by extending what? God's unconditional love to that person. We love them like Jesus loved them. The way we respond is to ask God to help us by the power of his Holy Spirit to still at least love them. Doesn't mean we've got to agree with them. Doesn't mean we've got to hang out with them. Doesn't mean we've got to support them or encourage them. But what we are called to do is say, God, help me to still love their soul. To still have a love in my heart. And he says, that's how we remain in the light. And look what he says there, verse 10. That's what keeps us from stumbling. That's what keeps you and I from making bad choices and responding wrongly. You know, Colossians 3, God gives commands even among the church family, saying, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, my favorite, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of maturity and unity. You go to Ephesians 4, you find almost the exact same thing. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit through anger and resentment and hatred, but instead, at least exercise unconditional spiritual love. Exercise that love. That is our one calling. Out of love, that's what keeps our heart in the light. Because look, if we don't do that, then we start gravitating to the dark and then we start stumbling in our own spiritual life in response. And so what we must do on occasion when things are hard is for our welfare and the welfare of the offender is say, God, would you just fill my heart with your love? Please, God. I need you to give me supernatural love for this person. God, you deal with them. But at least give me the ability to keep loving them because I don't want to stumble spiritually. Let's stand together and let's pray.